It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me here at the Talent Talk Radio Show. I have uh, two great guests uh, lined up for you, and hopefully uh, this will be a great one for you. So I've had the, the privilege of meeting so many different inspiring leaders, and we run across people all the time that we find interesting or fascinating or that we think can teach us something. So this show is really designed to give you an opportunity to listen in on our dialogue and some of the topics and things that we want to talk about that might uh, maybe uh, give you something interesting to think about or to do somewhere down the road in your own career. So Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and uh, you can access that show uh, live on the TuneIn Network, but you can also join most people and how they get it, which is either through the podcast app on iTunes or on any of the iHeartRadio apps or the website, uh, iHeartRadio.com. We've amassed a huge following. Over 300,000 of you came in last week and downloaded one of our shows or listened to one of those shows, and big thank you to everyone who's uh, listening and sharing and contributing and talking about the show. We re- really appreciate the support. keeps us going. Uh, because we do this for free. We do this completely as a service to the HR community, and we love sharing ideas. And so your support uh, really helps us keep the energy to keep doing it. If you have a question for one of my guests, you can submit them today via Twitter. Uh, just throw in your question, add the hashtag Talent Talk. If you, it's a short question, you got room to add the at PeopleG2. That also helps make sure that my producer, Mike, can find your question here and He'll shoot it over to me, and we can try to feed it into today's show. Of course, if you come to about to this show later on as a, one of the podcasts, you could probably still try to answer have that question asked. I'm sure our guests are, who are active on Twitter will be happy to answer your question. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about my guest today. Uh, my first guest will be uh, Paul Falcone. He's the HR, an HR executive who's had senior leadership positions at Paramount Pictures, Nickelodeon, Time Warner Cable, you might have heard one of one of those before. He's also a, a best-selling author of several books. And then after our commercial break, we'll have our second guest, uh, Delta Emerson. He's the president of Global Shared Services at uh, Ryan. So the uh, Delta will be uh, joining me in the second half of the show, as I mentioned. But let's go ahead and get to our first guest, uh, Paul. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself uh, and what you're doing and... Uh, uh, a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, Chris. I had an interesting background in that I found my way to human resources. When I got out of college with my master's degree in German, which is a long story because I'm Italian, I went to a headhunting firm looking for a job, and they hired me. And I ended up becoming a sales recruiter for about six years and then eventually went inside with companies. One uh, of the clients had uh, hired me. And so I've worked for companies from with 50 employees up to 150,000 employees. And I've kind of moved up the ranks of, of leadership. At Paramount Pictures, I was head of international HR. At uh, Nickelodeon, I was head of HR, which is all part of Viacom. I was with them for about 10 years. And uh, now, knock on wood, career has been very well. I've been very pleased, very blessed. Uh, but I teach at UCLA Extension. I've written for years for HR Magazine. I've got my 10th book coming out next month. So, yeah, things are going well, knock on wood. Certainly great stuff, and, uh, you know, it's always fascinating to get someone who's had so many different experiences in different organizations who can maybe share with us what are some of those common truths or things that you consistently saw that, you know, worked or didn't work, um, and hopefully we can kind of get into some of that here today. Um, you know, we talked about you working for lots of different high-profile companies in the field of HR. Maybe what are some of the rewards and challenges that you 
maybe kind of keep you in here that when you're working with these types of organizations, what, what what's the good stuff that, you know, kind of keeps you coming back for more? Yeah. The, the funny thing for me is I always kind of wanted to get into the aircraft carriers, so to speak, the big giant companies with the name brand recognition. I enjoyed that. Probably reached the tight when I worked for Nickelodeon. And as soon as you told people you work for Nickelodeon, their eyes would open up and they'd say, SpongeBob, do you know SpongeBob? <laughs> and right, the funny thing right. is, I did. They were right down the hall from my office. That really is kind of fun. The larger companies typically have stronger benefits. There's a lot of challenge in the fact that when you're in a corporate job and you're trying to roll out programs, they're programs that impact employees, that change their careers, sometimes change their lives. And even if you're a field HR guy, um, you want to create programs that hopefully roll back to corporate because they like the work that you're doing so much. I really kind of see what I do in HR is an ability to touch people's lives. More importantly, to touch their careers, of course, but um, that's the fun part for me. That's why I like doing what I do. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, having those kind of impact to uh, really go out there and put a program forward that's going to have an impact on so many different people's lives. Um, but is that also stressful, too, because you you, you got to really make it right? When you, when you launch a program at a big company, it's got to be hard to kind of pull that back if, it, if you didn't do it right the first time. Whereas, you know, you launch a program at a 10-person company, you go, oh, we screwed up, let's just try something different. It's a little bit easier. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and, you know, the funny thing is that's kind of where the challenge comes in, but I like working in a group. The funnest part for me about doing HR in a corporate environment has always been the fact that I kind of follow that rule that says hire people who are smarter than you and listening to their input and trying to get ideas from them in terms of where we're going to hit a roadblock or where this is going to be perceived the wrong way. It's not easy. Um, I think human resources people get into HR because they enjoy working with people, and you can't change that. There is a little bit of a calling to this. On the other hand, there is no human resources planet, uh, person on the planet who at some point doesn't think, <laughs> I really want to go into accounting. I'm so done with people. It's hard. And people have that need for you on a personal basis, on a professional basis at all times. And that's why I say there's a little bit of a ministry to this. There's a little bit of a calling to it. Yet at the same time, it can be overwhelming, especially when companies are going through challenging times. So, yes, I totally agree with you. It's a special function. It, it's, it's, it's something that can really make or break a company these days because when you think about an intellectual economy, intellectual capital, whatever you want to call it, what distinguishes a great company from a good company is really the caliber of its leadership. And so everything I've always focused on in my teaching and my writing is how to strengthen that, that muscle of frontline leadership because I think that makes all the difference in the world. One of the things I've noticed about people who tend to be kind of gravitate toward HR is just being people, people, and um, having that uh, kind of basic desire to want to help people and to make people's lives better. But the hard lesson I think they have to learn is that you can't please everybody, that they naturally or maybe want to please everyone. But to your point, there are so many people that you're possibly going to interact with at some point. You're going to if you're trying to please everyone and make it perfect for everyone, you may start pulling out your hair and want to go into accounting. And since most people listen to the, this program or HR people, nobody wants to go into accounting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. No, that's true. And if you're going to try and please everyone all the time, well, it would be impossible. In the landscape that we work in in human resources, there will always be detractors to what you're doing, either on right. a specific project or in general. But that's the same for everybody. There's no function out there that automatically gets a seat at the table, so to speak. You have to earn that. And you earn it by building trust in the relationships that you have with your, with your clients and your boss and everyone else. So in that sense, yes, HR is, is challenged like everyone else to kind of define itself. On the other hand, as, as most things you'll read about these days, look, companies are coming around and they're realizing the talent is critical and that employee engagement is critical and that metrics and analytics are critical because they're trying to look at this muscle and they're trying to really say, okay, if we can strengthen it and make a change here, what's the impact going to be not only on the dollar line, uh, the, the, the dollar bottom line, but really in terms of, you know, investors and how they're going to see the company. It's a fascinating time. It really is. But there's certainly a lot of change going on out there for HR and everyone else. So part right. of us, I think we're hanging on. Uh, and part of us are trying to drive some change, too, at the same time. Well, there's certainly a lot of different ideas um, that are finally getting attention, that are maybe coming around to that people are letting go of some of the command and control and that kind of uh, the old kind of ways of managing people that it's, you know, seeping in a bit farther into the organizations that people are seeing the results and the benefits of thinking differently and approaching things differently. And 
So I'm sure that some of that kind of comes around. I know you've written several books, and the latest book that's coming out in June is titled 75 Ways for Managers to Hire, Develop, and Keep Great Employees. So while we don't have time to go through all 75, maybe you can summarize some of the most effective ways that top organizations are finding and keeping their top talent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, The funny thing is, with my, my books, it was like 96 great interview questions to ask before you hire, 101 tough conversations to have with employees. Those are the kinds of books I like because they're very practical. I've always said my books are meant to be in the trenches kinds of books that teach you how to do stuff, not just more of the theoretical 30,000-foot stuff. Right. When we came together, the publishers of the American Management Association, and we came up with the new idea for the 75 Ways book, what I said to them was, I said, look, you guys, I've been in human resources for 25 years, and what doesn't exist is a book out there to teach frontline managers how to lead effectively, both from an offense standpoint and a defense standpoint. But it's more, Chris, than just offense and defense. It's almost more like the leadership wisdom. So what I said to them was, the way I see this is I want it to be an operational field manual. If someone, if a company hires a new leader, I want them to have something to read in the first 90 days. Or if someone gets newly promoted into a leadership job, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to agree with all 75 points, but at least they have something to throw a dart at. And, you know, it's like you can talk about it because even if you disagree, you can still help define what you do believe in. So that was kind of the original intention of the book. And, you know, I called it a guiding hand and a handy guide. It's, it's like it's meant to help people through a lot of the things that happen on a day-to-day basis that, you know, in human resources, we see this stuff because it's what we do. But a lot of frontline managers see this stuff very, very rarely. And if you kind of pull the the curtain back and not make it so scary to people, they'll know how to deal with it better. They'll know how to address it better. They'll know when to escalate because really leadership is a team sport. Uh, The days of, you know, I manage my leaders, I, I manage my team, and I don't need anyone else's help can get people in a lot of trouble these days. So trying to teach leaders to become stronger leaders means understanding how to network with your community and know when to escalate and those kinds of things. Well, I'm happy to hear you that you're kind of focusing on some of those tactical things, those very specific things that people can use that will help them because that's a lot of the problems inside of management and middle management that people just don't have the tools, they don't have the training, they don't know what else to rely on except for like we said, maybe command and control or, or things like that. Um, I know when I get asked to speak all the time, it's usually something very strategic, and I have to say, okay, but I'm not going to talk about the importance of employee engagement. I'm going to tell them how to actually do that, and here's the 15 tactical things they can do tomorrow to, to actually start helping. So it sounds very much in line with what you're doing, so I really appreciate that. Speaking about employee engagement, that's really something that a lot of companies are still struggling with. And you know, certainly if you look at polls that Gallup is doing and other organizations, it, it, it doesn't look, it's certainly not good right now. You could also say there's a great opportunity there for growth <laughs> for us to get at a high level. So maybe what are some of the important factors of engagement that you feel people are looking for or should be looking for in an organization? Great question. And I think that, you know, a lot of people feel like they are treading water career-wise, because the truth of the matter is since 2008 with the Great Depression or Great Recession, a lot of companies have been frozen, right? Frozen merit increases, no promotions, headcount restrictions, cuts. Now all of a sudden an uptick in hiring and now the unemployment rate is so low and the recruiters are saying they can't find candidates. What used to take 10 years as a business cycle now takes about two to three. Um, and that's how fast these ups and these downs come. But when it comes to the engagement piece of this, You mentioned Gallup, and that always brings to mind for me the uh, First Break All the Rules book, which was written about the findings of the Gallup organization. And the idea is that, you know, employee engagement is at a low because there's so much disruption out there, primarily coming from the technology changes. And the technology is creating the offshoring opportunities, and people are worried about jobs, and all of that is legitimate. On the other hand, I would argue that with all the change that's going on around us, if you choose to look at the glasses half full rather than half empty, um, there's a lot more opportunity. Jobs are being created that didn't even exist five years ago. So, again, it's a matter of being fast on your feet, but it is very disruptive because certain people have a harder time with change, never mind leading it, just being affected by it. So I would say that, you know, in that book, First Break All the Rules, their primary rule was retention is the key to it all because strong companies are, are, are marked with high retention and low turnover, the logic being that they keep all the institutional knowledge. And so that's a big advantage. You can have someone who's been with a company for 25 years who can do the work of four new people because they know where to find things and they know the history and everything else. And I do think that when it comes to retention – 
the employee engagement, the employee satisfaction is really where you have to look. And the question is, what are the types of things that you want to implement as a company that's going to work well for your people that you want to explore further? But there's no one-size-fits-all. You can't just go to the library and find the book about, you know, a thousand and one ways to motivate. I mean, it really is more personal. And that's the key to everything. It's the personal relationships that leaders have with their immediate direct reports that makes people want to stay. And I say that over and over again because I think people sometimes poo-poo it and they say it sounds nice and it's HR speak. It is not. If you think about the best boss that you ever had, or you ask anyone to do it, Chris, they're going to describe people who, you know, she had my back, she encouraged me, she challenged me to do things I didn't even think I can do, she always made me feel like she appreciated my input. When you're describing that best boss, that's all because there's a relationship there, and you can't get around that no matter how many books you buy, mine or anyone else's. The, the reality is people join companies and they leave supervisors, and that's the truth, right? They join the company because they have mm-hmm. a perception, but then two years later, like, oh, my God, I can't take working for this person anymore. I've got to go. Um, yeah. If you can find a way to strengthen that relationship with your immediate direct reports, life gets better for everybody, yourself included. And as you brought up this, you know, really idea of the relationship, um, you know, one of the kind of real fundamental parts of, of a good relationship is being able to have good conversations and to be able to have tough conversations, whether it's a tough conversation with your direct report or as a direct report to your manager about what's happening, how are you performing, what you can do to grow, where are you failing, whatever that conversation, that tough conversation needs to be. But, you know, people tend to hate to have these tough conversations we want to avoid, we don't want to pin down into something or to have be, feel uncomfortable. And so sometimes these things can linger and go on and on. And I know you wrote a book about tough conversations. So maybe what are some of those things that, you know, in your career that you've had to kind of address and, and how, did, how did the employees respond? Well, the funny thing is when you, the, the book was called 101 Tough Conversations to Have with Your Employees. And people say, well, Paul, you must have talked about disciplining people and terminating them and laying them off. And the answer is, of course, in the 101 samples, those certainly made up some of them. But it was really more about the subtle stuff, Chris. You know, it's how do you talk to someone that avoids managing their employees? How do you deal with someone who's too loose with the tongue and the foul language becomes an issue? Um, how do you sit with someone and convince someone it may be in their best interest to leave the company? even if you don't have any progressive discipline on file and you have no reason to terminate as a result. Um, those subtleties, that's really where I think people need to talk more. And just some quick tips that I've always found have worked for me. One of the things I always tell managers to do is use the word perception. Perception isn't right or wrong, it just kind of is, right? It's, it's like feelings. They're not right or wrong, they just are. And you can sit with someone and say, Chris, permission, I want to talk to you about something. Are, are you okay with that? Sure, Paul, what's up? Okay, I want to talk to you about something that I'm not judging you on. It's not a right or wrong, but from a perception standpoint, I think you may not be seeing something. It may be a short, short-sightedness on your, point, on your part that could impact you negatively. And not just now, I mean for the remainder of your career. And I want, I want full discretion here to share this with you. When you approach someone like that, you talk about perception and you can talk to them freely about now launch into whatever. The way you're coming across is too uh, condescending, you're proselytizing, or you appear to be sometimes not listening to your employees. You've got a body odor problem that I suspect may be an issue that you're not aware of. I mean, you can throw any kind of conversation that you want into that template. The thing about it is it's so hard to start the conversation that people usually avoid it and hope that it fixes itself, which sometimes it does. But in the other 99% of the time, you're, you're really going to have to jump in there. And I think the hardest part is saying it kindly saying it nicely, but not saying it too wishy-washy. I mean, you've got to be direct with people. And so I think, you know, for me, it's always, I've sat with people and said, I think you have a perception management problem on your hands. And they'll say, what are you talking about? And I'll say, well, they used to call them public relations firms. Now they call them perception management firms. But the idea is the perception is reality until proven otherwise. And here's what I think may be going on, because I'm seeing it myself as your supervisor, and I've heard it from some other people. But you may not even be aware of it, and I can't expect you to fix it unless you know. And then you start to talk to them about this. At that point, you've set it up so that they're listening. If they're angry, 
anger goes nowhere. You tell someone you've got an attitude problem, <laughs> their body language is saying, no, I don't, you do, and the anger kicks in. Now they're acting on principle. They're calcified. They're not going anywhere in this conversation. But don't right. come so much from anger. If you can, and interestingly enough, Chris, come from guilt. And I don't mean guilt in the old-fashioned sense of making someone feel bad. I'm talking about guilt as like the transcendental uh, human emotion. If you talk to someone who mouths off, at you in front of everyone else on your team and you're embarrassed as a supervisor, you can either yell right back at them, which is going to invoke anger, or you can sit with them privately and say, I don't know what happened in there, but Chris, I'll be honest with you, it really hurt my feelings. I was embarrassed in front of the rest of the team that someone on the team would talk to me that way. I respect you too much to talk to you that way, and I wouldn't talk to anyone else on the team that way. What was going on in there? You could have a very interesting conversation with someone that will ultimately get them to say, Paul, I'm sorry. That wasn't my intention. I apologize if that's the way it came across. And that's it. Once they assume partial responsibility for the problem, it's fixed. It won't come back again. But if you're going to do, you know, anger versus anger and, and one shot versus the other and who's higher on the totem pole and has bigger stripes on their shoulders, you're not going to get very far. It's just is going to, it's going to hurt that relationship over the time or over the, over the long term. Well, these are great uh, suggestions and I'm hoping everyone's uh, feverishly taking notes because these are fantastic ways to try to go back and approach things in a really kind of practical ways that you can do this. It actually reminds me a lot of some negotiation trainings, you know, how do you actually approach people and get people to talk about stuff, to to deal with you in situations, and in some ways you're having a negotiation with that person as well. Very uh, true. Maybe having that difficult conversation with and kind of setting that tone, getting them prepared to hear something they may not want to hear or want to talk about, but opening them up. So like you said, it's not an argument. It's not an instant you know, two people puffing their chests out, and of course, you're going to get nowhere in that in that situation. Right. Hey, you mentioned you're also an instructor at uh, UCLA um, and uh, at the uh, Extension School of Business and Management. What, what do you tell your students there about the importance of HR functions in, in companies? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the three verbs I always use when it comes to HR is the ability to attract, develop, and retain. And the attraction comes from your recruiting. Uh, the retention typically comes from your ability to develop people. Because as I say, I think the, the strongest performers will always be resume builders. And one of the things you have to make sure of as a leader, I don't care if you're in a five-person company or a 5,000-person company, is to make sure that people are focused on their own professional development. Learning, to me, is the glue that binds someone to a company. Everyone wants to be in a learning curve. That's the challenge. Again, Chris, to what we said earlier, I think a lot of people feel like they're doing a lot of the same stuff. It's been there, done that. Their jobs haven't changed much. They're afraid to leave because if they go to another company, they'll be the last one. They'll be the first out if there's ever a layoff. People need to kind of motivate themselves. I'm not saying that managers need to motivate people. Motivation is internal. But managers, leaders need to create an environment where people can motivate themselves. And it's an important distinction. And sometimes you need to kick them into, into gear a little bit and create more of that achievement mentality so that they're not only helping themselves when it comes time to write their own self-review, but also to build resume bullets. I want my people thinking about how can they build their resume and what's the next move in progression going to look like. And then from there, what I've always told them is make me your mentor and your coach. I'll help you get there, whether it's here or somewhere else. I will help you move to your next step in career progression, just let me know where you want to go. And then the students would always say, you mean you tell them or somewhere else? And I say, absolutely. If, if they can find something that's better out there and we help them prepare for that, it's something we can all celebrate. But I tell them, look, you guys, the truth of the matter is I've had very low turnover in my career on my teams because they enjoy working with me and I enjoy working with them. And when you have that, you're not going to become recruiter's bait the next time some headhunter calls with a 15% increase that they're dangling in front of you. So I think those psychic elements of uh, that psychic income, that's really what drives people. They want to feel like they're making a positive difference for the company that they matter and that they're making a positive difference in their own careers because they're chalking up resumes and uh, or bullets for their resumes and they're, and they're pulling together these achievements that help them for their own sake but also help the company. It's great advice and um, I'm sure uh, your students appreciate having you as a professor. It sounds like a, a good relationship. Uh, uh, I know you. we've mentioned uh, some of your books here today but I'm wondering if there's a book that you're reading right now is that is kind of a favorite question of ours to ask all of our guests, and maybe you can tell us about it. Interesting. Yes, I'm reading a book right now called Fearless HR, uh, Driving Business Results, and it's by David Foreman, who is uh, – uh, David Foreman, I think, is either in 
San Diego or South Orange County um, here in Southern California. And the foreword to the book was by Dave Ulrich, which many people, they know Dave from his many books. He's at the University of Michigan. Um, but great idea. You know, I like to read books that aren't exactly what my writing style is all about. And I, and I think uh, David Foreman does such a good job with Fearless HR in focusing on um, you know, the things that are really kind of critical. They, one of the things he talks about, for example, is this leadership capital index. And the idea is, you know, you come up with this idea that will help um, drive market valuations, the intangible assets. What are the things that companies should be looking for? He talks about HR as a data-rich environment that really can help you. That's your that's your rudder that steers the ship of your company in terms of where your human capital talent lies. Some really really great ideas. HR levers that could be used. I was very impressed by this book, and uh, it's uh, something that I'm I'm not done with it yet, but I'm getting there. But it's a great book. Sounds like a good read. And don't forget, we will list all the different books that uh, Paul has mentioned today on our uh, blog recap on PeopleG2.com in the blog section. But, uh, Paul, how, how can people get a hold of you or a website as a way for them to find out more about all your different books that you have? What, what's the best way for them to, to know more about you? Oh, that's nice, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. Um, my website is, it's Paul Falcone, which is my last, you know, my first last name. And Falcone is F-A-L-C-O-N-E. Uh, and then just HR, like human resources. So it's www.paulfalconehr.com. So there's the website. Uh, Twitter is at Paul Falcone HR. Uh, you can log on to Amazon. My Amazon page is under Paul Falcone. So uh, any of those ways would probably be easiest. Or LinkedIn, of course. And, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share everything with us. And hopefully we can have you come back and uh, give us some more wisdom and an update on how you're doing. Yeah, I'd love to, Chris. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. All right. We'll be right back after this brief com uh, commercial break with our second guest, uh, Delta Emerson. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can find us on TalentTalkRadio.com, on iTunes, on iHeartRadio. We're all over the Internet. We can't, you can't miss us. So, But uh, most importantly, if uh, you want to send a question, whether it's live or later on if you're listening, go ahead and use that hashtag Talent Talk. We also love guest suggestions and anything else you think we ought to be doing a better job of. We, we love any uh, kind of feed forward there you can give us. Uh, what we can do in the future. So, but let's go ahead and get to my uh, next guest, uh, Delta Emerson, the president of Global Shared Services at Ryan. Um, and uh, so, Delta, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your company, uh, Ryan. Well, I'll start with Ryan. Uh, we are a professional services firm that specializes in global tax advisory services. And essentially, we liberate our clients from the burden of being overtaxed, and we help free their capital so they can invest it, grow, and thrive. We make sure they pay exactly the taxes they owe and not a penny more. We've got about 2,100 professionals serving clients in more than 40 countries. We're headquartered in Dallas, Texas. And our CEO founded Ryan when he was just 26 years old. He had a really big idea and a handful of credit cards. And we're actually going to be celebrating our 25th anniversary this summer, so we're very excited about that. 
Um, I've been with Ryan's for 12 years, and my background from an education standpoint, I have degrees in journalism, English, education, dispute resolution, and my corporate experience, uh, very heavy in training, OD, and HR. But at Ryan, I came in to build the HR function and served as CHRO and then was promoted to chief of staff, and I'm now serving as president of, as you said, Global Shared Services. So I've got HR, IT, marketing, legal, strategy, finance, corporate development, real estate, just all the infrastructure that drives um, our professional services firm. So it sounds like when there's something, if someone needs to be assigned to something, they just give it to you. (laughs) (laughs) I I tend to like to to take challenges on. That's that's true. A little bit masochistic perhaps, but it is true. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'll keep you busy. Well, I I know in the last year you received a couple of honors. Uh, One is a top female executive, another one is a top woman in, 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 top women in business. So what do you attribute most of your overall success in business and leadership to? Well, I have to say I really appreciate that question. It's not something I'd thought about until you posed it. But the first thing I'd point to would be just circumstance of birth. I think that where I was born, the parents I was born to had a lot to do with that. My work ethic likely comes from that. I I took school and all my other responsibilities very seriously. And I had a very creative dad by virtue. My first name is Delta. My sisters are Alpha, Beta, and Theta. He was always the, he had to be different and stand out. So he did it in every way. But one of the things that came to mind, when I was in grade school, um, projects were always given, and he taught me to think outside the box. I didn't realize that until I became an adult and kind of the impact that it had on me. As an example, uh, when I was in like the second or third grade, one evening science class, we were supposed to go home that night and come back the next day with something that would float, a boat of sorts. So matchboxes and things like that, anything. It just had to float uh, to prove the point. And when I told my dad what I was up to, he helped basically helped me build a boat that was very small that made out he sanded it. We sanded it out of balsa wood and actually made a real flag and a pole and a mast and everything that goes with it. And I had a really phenomenal boat. And that was like the first of many projects that he and I worked on together. So that really taught me to set the bar pretty high for myself. It was kind of a rush to be able to do something like that and feel the accomplishment and and then come in with something that was impressive and that worked really well with others. But I would say on top of that as well, mentors. I think all of us have had those people in our lives that have had a, an impact on us professionally, and including my current CEO, Brent Ryan, people who've given me opportunities and pushed me because they believed in my what I would call unseen potential. Um, the first couple of times that happened to me professionally where I'd put myself in a niche and was really pretty comfortable, they I felt like they were doing something to me instead of for me. Those mentors have made a, a big difference to me. I think of one story in particular that one of my early uh, CEOs told that really impressed me. He was he said when he was very fresh out of school as an MBA, he went into a retail environment where he was put into a trainee position and he was very well educated and working with people who had been at their jobs for a very long time and they basically kind of hazed him, threw him into a room basically and said, make sure you get this, this room of inventory organized by tomorrow morning at 8. And he ended up staying all night to make it happen and did it perfectly and gained their trust and credibility. But he, he spent his whole career doing that and it really taught me a lot about going that extra mile. So I think those are the two things from a people standpoint that have that has uh, really influenced me a great deal. And somewhere along the way as well, I would add that I've kind of adopted an emperor has no clothes approach to communicating with leadership when I've gained the credibility I need. I'm not afraid to tell someone what I think they need to know with a combination of kind of courage and consideration. It's much more effective to do, to do that than to to speculate about something behind someone's back instead of just being authentic and honest with them so that you can help them do what they need to do or at least give them something to consider. So those are the things that that I think have had an influence on my ability to make a difference in organizations and with with leaders. Well, with the examples that you gave, you really kind of highlighted the opportunity to do something that's more than what's expected, maybe something that is better than what's expected. I mean, the, the boat that you build with with your dad, I mean, you could have just brought in, I don't know, just a plastic rubber ducky. I mean, that would have floated, right? So 
Um, instead, you went and built a boat, and you built something that was impressive. And, and not only that, but it was fun, and it was something that you enjoyed. I mean, you didn't go to the store and buy something impressive. You, you built it yourself. So it was something you had pride in that you kind of took to another level. And that sounds like it's sort of trans, translated into what you're doing in, in, into your life, that you're able to provide something great, and but in, in that regard, even something better than what was expected. So... I'm sure that's probably why you're now an EVP and chief of staff and you're helping Ryan there, your company, in becoming a highly recognized company through the work that you're doing in HR and organizational development. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what are some of the keys, key initiatives that you helped to bring about maybe in your early years with a company that's really kind of spurred that company on to become recognized as a top workplace. Sure. One of the first things that that comes to mind is the flexible environment that we have at Ryan. It's been in place since 2008. I joined in 2004, and we actually call it My Ryan. Uh, We branded it internally so that we reference it officially. But when I came into Ryan, I encountered a company that was very, uh, I would have to say draconian, and I have said that our CEO uses the word as well, in the way that we approached people. FaceTime was everything. People bragged about the number of hours they worked because they were counted whether you were a billable person or not. Everybody logged every single hour. If you were exempt, you had to work no less than 50 hours a week. And people were sorted every review point to see who had worked the most hours. So being physically present was incredibly important. And it was in a day and age, even 12 years ago, where we had the technology that supported being able to work in a little bit different manner. So... It was a uh, something that I saw early on that needed to be addressed. It was impacting our ability to retain. It was we were not staying with the times. It was just on the beginning curve of many companies moving in this direction. But I had the kind of the pain and the pleasure of helping bring my Ryan to life, and it took about four years to get there. And a lot of um, discussions with our with our my CEO and and using data and and providing a potential solution and designing something that was that was uh, sophisticated and well thought out. But he was very open minded and receptive to that, and he's been an incredible leader in that respect. He's known now for being he's a tax expert, but he speaks as frequently about culture as he does about tax because of the the change we did a one. 80 um, in the way that we deal with people when we implemented that flexible work environment. In fact, we were just notified last month that we were named um, by Fortune um, to one of the micro lists that they have as the number one uh, workplace in the U.S. related to flexibility. So we're really proud of that and, and the fact that our employees enjoy the ability to live their personal lives and their, their professional lives all together without boxes drawn around them. And they can, wherever they are in their lives, whether they're on the front end of right out of college and getting set up in this world or uh, new parents or dealing with aging parents or getting ready to retire, they can be where they need to be when they need to be there because we essentially let our, our employees work anywhere, anytime, as long as they achieve the results that are expected of them. There's a lot more to it than that, but then in a nutshell, that's what my Ryan is all about. The second thing that I've really enjoyed having an opportunity to help with is the approach we take to giving back community outreach. We always had a very generous group of people at Ryan. That was definitely the case when I came in, but there wasn't really a strategy around it. A lot of people served on boards and and wrote checks and, and gave their hours of service, but they didn't have a strategy, so we developed that and have a foundation and we are we have a, a lot of fun around the world with the different things that our employees like to do to give back to the community. So that's that's been a great thing to see. I, I would have to say that most recently the thing that we've done that's been just awesome is implementing about two years ago a social media-based recognition system that we call Ryan Pride. It allows our employees, sort of like Facebook, to go out and recognize each other, to recognize upwards, downwards. It's 360 opportunity to give people recognition, and it goes through a feed, a news feed that people can see. You can award points to people. It's tied into our core values which is another one of the things that I got to work on as a really great project, helping identify what our core values are. And those things, those three things I would say are the ones that I, 
I take the most uh, pride in as far as what our company has been willing and able to do to to create a workplace that makes people very proud and comfortable and able to achieve their potential. Well, it sounds like part of that is uh, started with education. And, you know, we can go back to the very beginning of your story, kind of tracking people by hours. You know, if we don't stop to think about what are some other ways, what are better ways we might be able to see how people are performing, um, then then we don't know. And so if you can you can evolve something, you guys like you have some internal tools that you you're doing. But that's kind of in, in part what this show's about is, you know, us trying to talk about what are some of the different ways that companies are approaching this. Um, because clearly how many hours you worked is not a you know, direct correlation to how valuable you are to the company or how much work you got done. Exactly. You can be sitting next to someone who who is there in their cube and they may not be doing anything productive or someone could be at home at at midnight wearing pink fuzzy slippers and in their sweats and really pounding something out just because you're sitting next to someone. It's kind of that if I can't see you're not working paradigm is just not true. Yeah, and we've seen so many people kind of fall into that. If I if I see you, if you're shuffling papers around, I hear a stapler mm-hmm. every once in a while, then you must be doing something good. <laughs> exactly. <And> rarely are they. <laughs> but you have to be able to have an intelligent conversation about that. One thing we figured out, I have to say, Chris, very early on when we were going down this path, we did a um, measure twice, cut once before we implemented our program because we had heard stories of companies that decided just overnight, okay, we're going to be flexible and we're going to trust our folks to handle that and they didn't do any planning around that so we did the planning and one of the main things that we did was we said if we're going to tell people that we're only going to measure them based on results we have to be able to have an intelligent conversation and we have to identify be transparent and be mutually involved in that what what do results look like and how are we going to measure that so we put a lot of effort into that which is what I think has allowed us to sustain this for for eight years because some companies have tried and then pulled back from it and I, I would argue that probably Probably if we look deep within those companies, they may not have spent as much time as they needed to in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. When you give flexibility, you have to allow autonomy. You have to continue to make sure people have an opportunity to learn. They have to really be bought into what your purpose of your company is. But measurement is so key. Exactly. Um, I agree. They have to know where they're headed. You have to know where they're headed. So we all can agree. Here's your finish line. Did you get there or not? And right. No surprises. No yeah, surprises. yeah, and, exactly. and if you don't, that planning is huge. If you don't have that figured out ahead of time, or at least aren't pivoting and and getting it right as you're going along, and yeah, you're going to run into a real big problem at the end. And yeah, of course, the natural thing is just to go back to well, well, let's just measure hours again, right? You make a good point. You have to you have to figure out how to adjust as you go. We've definitely learned that in the eight years we've been at it because we are right now in the process of retooling a little bit on the way we have those success-based discussions. And part of what's helped with that is we have a lot of metrics. We're, in a, we're a firm that's professional services. We have a lot of accountants, people who are very good with data and metrics. But we had, we had success because we pulled a cross-functional team together and always do when we're looking at this. Instead of going behind closed doors in HR or with just a couple of people and saying, okay, here we are. We figured it out. This is the way it's going to be. We designed this from the ground up with involvement from multiple levels, all parts of the organization organization because we knew we would run into some potholes and that if we didn't do this together we wouldn't we would miss something so when we run into the potholes we all just kind of look at each other because we're side by side shoulder to shoulder in what we've done and we say okay we're going to figure this out and we tend, we don't point fingers and say oh you messed up because you forgot this it's a very uh, team approach to the way we make it work and I know you're kind of overseeing some of the leadership stuff within your company and globally as well in how you support your employees sort of worldwide. So I'm sure this is all important things that drive into that. And what are some of the challenges, though, that you face in managing, you know, groups on a global level? Because we can talk about this maybe in the framework of what we've already covered here today all being in the same office or all being in the same state or the same time zone. or Yeah, maybe people can even think about it from the same country. But now when you start going global, it, it really does change it. So what, what are some of the challenges there that you're seeing? 
That's a great point. I I would say one size does not fit all. That sounds cliche, but it's so true when I think specifically about implementing the flexible work environment, my Ryan, around the world. We've most recently, and it's taken about two years, had success in doing so in India. But it was a very different challenge there, and that team on the ground there had to figure it out. We worked collaboratively to explain how we did this in the U.S. and in Canada and in other countries, but there are different challenges in India that had to be dealt with so that it would fit for them. So I would say it's not, um, I couldn't, I cannot, I'm frequently asked to share exactly how we did what we did and I'm happy to do that. I do it probably 12 times a year at, at conferences. But when we do that, we say this is how we did it, but you need to figure out what will work for you. So that one size doesn't fit all. You have to meet people where they are and listen and, and let them own it and the people on the ground have to, have to be involved in that because the cultural differences and the reality differences in different locations require being very agile and not just being prescriptive about it. I think the smartest thing you can really do is to realize how ignorant you really are. If you are not from a country, do not know it well, you have to marshal resources, listen, and and not let your own paradigms get in the way. Now, the typical things that we encounter as well, time zones and that physical separation is a bit of a challenge, but today, because of technology and being able to use video and Skype and and all the the tools we have at our disposal, it makes it a lot easier. So we have, in my particular, we have over 2,000 people. We're a fairly small company, about 2,100. 200 of those are in the Global Shared Services Group, and most of those are in the U.S. We have about 40 people in support roles scattered around the globe. So we have to be really mindful of how we can make sure that we're synergizing appropriately in all the different ways that count. And it's not just the logistics. It's that the mindsets as well and just the, the cultures that we come from. Well, and, you know, you you talk about sort of country differences. Uh, you know, it sounds really smart what you guys did to really make sure that you were um, helping them kind of help figure it out. You maybe gave them the framework, but allowing them to, to figure it out is huge so that they can really own it, they can drive it, and it becomes a part of what they're doing. But I might think about just the differences in how somebody might approach something in where I'm at in, in Southern California versus where you're at in Dallas, Texas. I mean, there, there's there's differences there in how people might want to interact with their work or what they might be doing, let alone completely different part of the world, different, uh, multiple different languages in India that, that you deal with. So, yeah, the, the challenge is huge, but it sounds like you were practicing what you were preaching with that approach of being collaborative, allowing people to be a part of that solution and coming up with what fits in writing, so that planning phase of it to make sure that it works for everyone, management and employees, to really help them be successful in the, in the long term. Am, am I kind of fr- framing that correctly? I think you are. And as you're talking, it's making me think about the term diversity comes to mind. But when you make the point about Southern California versus Dallas, Texas, totally agree. The diversity exists really on multiple levels. At the macro level, diversity around the different countries we come from, the ethnicity and all that, but down to the desk level, I'm sitting here in front of my computer today in Dallas, Texas, and you're where you are, and we are in the same country, but there's still a diversity in the way that we like to approach our work, the way that the value we hold around community outreach, and I can't be prescriptive to you um, or to anybody in India because there are so many levels of diversity that come into play. So I think if we can ever get to the point that we learn to appreciate and really embrace diversity and say, I'm really glad you're walking through the door. It's kind of like you're the top left corner piece of the puzzle and I'm the bottom right. And instead of being threatened by that, being pleased that you're bringing something to the equation that I don't have and learning from you and and being able to talk instead of getting defensive or trying to posture and sell my point of view and my value. So the practical application for us of that has been the ability with both community outreach and with programs like the Flexibility and My Ryan to recognize that people have to make it their own. So if you go around the country, even in the U.S., and go to our offices in California and ask them how they handle their flexibility and how they handle community outreach, fundamentally it will be the same, same philosophy behind it, but it will look different because we allow that and we encourage that. So that is, I agree with you, that that's that's really where we need to land. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just the word diversity sort of sounds like the word different and and that kind of sometimes has a negative connotation to it. But, I mean, it really is a 
someone's different, they're going to maybe have a talent that I don't. You can help the organization, or they're going to have a passion around something that I don't that can help. I mean, there's so many things that I absolutely hate doing, and so if somebody else loves doing them, that is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and, there's there's a, you know, a book that you, I'm sure you've you've probably heard of, CEO of Me. Ellen Kosick is one of the the co-authors of it, and it speaks to work style preference diversity, kind of like Myers-Briggs does with personality styles, but at the work mm-hmm. style preference, there are people who are integrators and those who are separators and those who are in between. So if I happen to be an integrator, whether I'm at work, physically at work or at home, my mind is always, I can jump from one thing to the other. I don't draw a box around, hey, I'm at work, and then I box that off, and when I go home and I don't think about it. And there are some people who do that, and then there are every levels in between. So if I'm working next to you, and you are a separator, and I'm an integrator, and I jump in here at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I pick up the phone and, and make a call to get a hair appointment, and you're over there, you've been there since 8 o'clock on the dot, and you're diligently working, and you have spent every minute working, you hear me doing that, you could get frustrated with me because you don't appreciate that style and you think I'm a slacker and then I could get really frustrated with you because I think that you're, you know, kind of a you're stuck up and you're and you're too buttoned up. But if we learn to appreciate that level of diversity that there are different work styles, um that's what I what I was meaning around that related to the diverse approach. It's really preference more than diversity is probably a better right. word for that. Right. Well, you mentioned uh, one good book. I'm wondering if there's a book that you're reading right now that you might share with us. Well, one book that I haven't finished, because um, I need to, and strangely enough, the name of it is Unfinished Business, Women, <laughs> Men, Work, Family, and Marie Slaughter. I'm about a quarter of the way through it, but it's one that I'm enjoying reading, and I'm sure most people have heard of the work that she has done um related to just, I think, in the Atlantic, she wrote a, an article a couple of years ago, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. She was a female director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department for um, Hillary Clinton. But the book that she's that she's writing, based on what I've been able to, to discern so far, essentially is saying that she thinks the problem is going to be solved with the gender neutrality around that if we get to the point that our society learns to value caring about children and the elderly as much as we do about anything else. She doesn't believe there will ever be true gender equality until those professions, so to speak, parenting and caregiving, are as respected as as any other professional role. So I haven't gotten into the the details of it yet, but that's something that I'm interested in getting through because that's with what we do with Ma Ryan and the the focus that we have on trying to help meet people where they are, it's an interesting perspective to have. Well, it's uh, definitely sounds like a fascinating read. And don't forget, uh, we will post uh, all of the different books mentioned today and uh, a recap on our our website, uh, peopleg2.com, on the blog section. Really uh, appreciate you uh, being on the show today. We've learned a lot uh, from what you're doing and your perspectives as well. Uh, How can people learn more about Ryan if they're interested in, in joining your firm or just learning more about the great things that you're doing? Our website is on the World Wide Web at ryan.com, R-Y-A-N.com. And my email is delta, D-E-L-T-A dot Emerson, E-M-E-R-S-O-N, at ryan.com. And our main number in Dallas is 972-934-0022. And I'd be happy to share any information that anyone might like. We do have some case studies that have been written about my Ryan specifically, but happy to, to help in any way that I can. Love to share. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the show today and uh, sharing so much about uh, what you're doing and your company's doing, and really hope that uh, we can have you come back at some point and give us an update. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great afternoon. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, you've uh, gained something that you can use in your own career in a positive way uh, here uh, going forward. So next week, um, I'll be out of town, but uh, we'll be playing a best of uh, talent talk. Um, but uh, between now and then, uh, don't forget to uh, check out our previous shows on iTunes and iHeartRadio. But until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 